member J.M. Barry saying someplace that the reason birds can fly and we can't is simply because they have perfect faith. For to have faith is to have wings. Well, having wings does give them a leg up. Paul might say, I have great faith in fools. Self-confidence, my friends will call it. And as the Buddha said, doubt everything. Find your own light. I'm Lynn Miller. And I'm John Modaff. And this is the Unruly Muse. Hello, John. Hello, Lynn. I have faith that you're doing well. Isn't it a coincidence that our theme for the day is faith? Huh. It seems very timely given that we just had yesterday the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, who gave so many people faith in continuity. And when she said during lockdown, we will meet again, I think that gave faith to so many. There's an appetite for it, but we have many names for faith, and there's a cluster of satellites around the word faith, such as... Leaps of faith, blind faith. I'll believe it when I see it. Men and women in good faith. Ye of little faith. Sworn oaths, oaths of office. False promises, heartfelt promises. Solemn vows, wedding vows. Curses, hexes. Pledges of allegiance. Pledges of vengeance. Pledges of loyalty. Pledges of assurance. Contracts. And don't forget calendars for next year. And how about belief that one day will follow another? And lest we forget religious faith. In honor of which we offer our first song. Peter, oh Peter, why don't you come home? Your sister's much sweeter, but she's living alone. And it's a cold world, Peter, living alone. Thomas, oh Thomas, why don't you come home? Just found your gospels under a stone But it's too late to edit it Tough shit Judas, oh Judas, why don't you come home? We need a good traitor and there's no one around Who's got the balls to get the good man the balls to get the good man, get him out. Matthew, oh Matthew, why don't you come home? You're quoted profusely, you're never wrong. Hey, how about that, Matthew? Never Jesus, oh Jesus, why don't you come back? Churches in pieces, God's taking some flag, and the skies are filled with cries filled with fear. Oh Jesus, get the boys and come back here. 
Thanks to Dan Modef for banjo and mandolin on that. Give us a little bit about your genesis for writing this one. What I was trying to do is imagine the predicted return, the second coming, Mm -hmm. as something that needed to be solicited instead of that was just going to happen. I mean, what if we were making a mistake? What if we need to ask? So that's where the refrain of why don't you come home comes from to the apostles. But maybe the waiting alone is enough because the waiting is where the faith lies. Well, in this case, it's Peter's sister, and that's an allusion to the second church, I believe it was the church in Babylon, uh, that he refers to or someone refers to as the sister church. And the fragmentation of that means that home itself, if there was a church that was a singular term in Christianity sense, it is fragmented at the very Mm -hmm. least, if not pulverized. Sometimes I joke you can throw a stone and hit a church out here (laughs) where I live. And it's partly because people had small churches so that people could travel easily to them, and I'm sure that's part of the tradition. But an equal part, maybe a greater one, is the constant splitting off of a church into two churches and then those two into four and uh, so that people can practice faith and express it in just their way. Interesting. And, and the whole concept of home, whether it be a church or one's own home or where one grew up, that is a place where faith resides for many. Yes. Don't folks actually call churches, in some cases, the house of God? Exactly. So there we have home. Mm-hmm. That's where he hangs out. Yeah. The song is a, is a, a little bit of a poke, uh, but also a serious uh, exploration of what one person might say in praying for the return of Jesus and the Twelve. Mm-hmm. As I said before, just that belief that it might and will happen is enough to keep people going. Right. And that brings us to our first poem, Doubting Thomas, by Scott Wiggerman, an Albuquerque poet whom we have performed before on the show. Scott is the co-founder with David Meishen of Dos Gatos Press and does many workshops on writing and is a wonderful poet. Yes, this is a challenging poem. How did it come about? Scott told me, Doubting Thomas is my variation on a newer form created by Pulitzer-winning poet Jericho Brown. Like his, my poem is a combination of sonnet, 14 lines, ghazal, couplets, and the blues form, repeated lines. It's the blues form I most vary. I try to use the words of the second line of each couplet as the first line of the next couplet without simply repeating the line. I was captivated by this new form. Doubting Thomas is one of a series of duplexes I've written which attempt to solve some of the mysteries I've questioned since childhood regarding Catholicism and religious doctrines, some of which we were just talking about. So here is Scott's poem, Doubting Thomas. Despite your doubts, you thrust a finger in, then another, all all the the way way to your your palm. palm. All the way, another trial you've palmed. Your mouth goes there, your tongue an auger. Your tongue goes there, 
as mouths had augured. Blood-red skies stay silent. Ground does not fissure. Bloodshot eyes hold ground. Silvered by the fissure. Experience is the test of temptation. Taste temptation to savor experience. How How many many days days in the the desert desert is enough? Enough days to desert any tenets. Or to prove truths. Submerged in yourself. Find proof of your true self. Immerse. Confirm. Dispel all doubts. Thrust Thrust those those fingers fingers in. Thank you, Scott, for this very provoking poem. I really found fascinating the confluence of religion and sexuality here. That for many people, sexuality, having sex, is an act of faith. Faith, sometimes hope, maybe every time hope, and certainly love on occasion, we hope. Right, we hope. And and so, yes, there's an unmistakable second paradigm working in this poem. Very challenging and ambiguous poem at first glance, but the more you look, the more there is there to latch on to. But even in the title, we've got Doubting Thomas, which is the famous appellation, right, for that one apostle who needed evidence. But then there's also Doubting Thomas as a perspective, that is, doubting him. So there's right. doubting There's doubting as an adjective, which we commonly mean when we say doubting Thomas, but then there's doubting as a verb. And it seems to me that running through the poem is this testing of Thomas and his methods and, and then eventually approving. Interesting. And then there's also the test of how we lay bare our exterior pretenses to search for the true self, which happens in this poem with both the sort of tasting, the sexuality, and the sense of truth. Yes. Why was Thomas reaching into the wounds after the resurrection? He had, in a sense, a hypothesis he was testing. Uh, Everyone else around him was taking the evidence available, as far as we know, as sufficient. But he was saying, no, there's a way to prove this. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, there is an, there's an, there's a sort of proving also in the subtext of the poem, which as you've noted is sexual. And that is, it's not enough simply to look and then to believe. You have to somehow explore the fissure, as it were, to use the, the word from the poem. Yes, and you have to literally touch, taste, perhaps. You have to plunge in in some way, which the ending of the poem tells us. Yeah, you can't just sit idly by. It is a leap of faith in both senses. And in a way, we've uh, put a little shine back on the Apostle Thomas's reputation. because Yes, because he gets a bad rap, really. <laughs> he gets a bad rap for being an empiricist. And he has faith in evidence. And there he goes, and he he demonstrates the the scientific method, in a sense, when other people were willing to proceed without that. And in a way, both forms of consciousness exist in the room at that moment, where he says, no, it's not enough for me simply to look. I'm going to use all of my senses here. Well, and Scott mentions in his Genesis his own explorations about the mysteries of Catholicism and religious doctrines— And if you think about communion, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, and then you drink this mythical blood. I mean, 
The body is always a part of it. Mm -hmm. Yes, essential to the practice of faith, either actually or metaphorically or both simultaneously, as when you go to church, you know, to bear witness, as some people say. And then when you are there, something is given to you to take in, be it the host or just the ceremony or the ritual, and you leave changed by that. That's a tremendous creed that works, as far as I can tell, in any religion that has a practice of worship. I really want to thank Scott Wiggerman because what a thought-provoking poem and how he is a master of form, Scott is, of poetic forms, and this poem really shows that. It also makes me think about all the many meanings of faith and belief, which perhaps brings us into our next reading. I think you're right, and the attendant terms that orbit faith are, I hope, and belief, and promise, and trust. That's a big one. And that's the stuff of relationships and friendships. Yeah, and so much of friendship and relationship is simply having faith, hanging on. This story is called How Did You Know It Was Time to Go? And it has the subtitle, Indiana 1974. I'll give just a brief precy because this is just a part of the story. It's actually the ending of the story. There are really four characters, two couples, and our narrator, Katie, gets close to the man in the other couple, Jeff, who is being pressured by his girlfriend, who's 20 years older, to get married. And he begins to find her smothering. When she takes his last name and tells everyone about a wedding he doesn't want, he disappears. Katie is afraid he's really going to check out of life because he's under such stress. Katie also wants to leave her girlfriend, Susan. How Did You Know It Was Time to Go? by Lynn C. Miller. After Lauren began telling people about the wedding he hadn't agreed to, Jeff called from work and told me he was thinking of leaving town. My dad's really lonely now that my mom's gone. I forget when she died. Well, been ten years, but he seems to be getting a lot worse. Drinking too much bourbon. There's not much to do in southern Ohio. Kind of like central Indiana. I thought of my own parents up in the Dakotas. They had each other, though, and they actually seemed to like dancing at places like the Elks Club. All their friends did, too. Their part of Ohio borders Appalachia. It's scary quiet, except when someone gets bonked on the head for stealing a pig. (laughs) Jeff's voice had a dreamy stoned quality. Your dad's a doctor or something, right? Dentist. I guess I'm not really representing his life very well. So, I looked up at the crappy chandelier in our apartment. I'd really miss you if you moved. You're leaving in three months yourself. Do you know those moments when if you just said something simple like, I wouldn't mind a road trip to Ohio, the planets would shift and whirl a little faster? Or even slower. It doesn't matter what you'd say, but something would happen. But before I could make my proposal, Jeff started coughing and kind of retching. (laughs) Katie, could you come over here now? I think I'm having some kind of attack. I didn't leave Susan a note. Just grabbed my peacoat and headed for my car. The home wasn't far, about 12 minutes. Next door to it was the West Lafayette Hospital. An emergency van sat in the circular drive, its lights blinking. I put my hand to my chest, thinking of Jeff hacking as we talked. I waited... But no one came out of the van on a stretcher. I pushed through the double doors of the home and walked down a long, tan hallway with shining floors 
The cleaner had just polished them, but you could see the scratches under the smooth surface. Many feet had shuffled along these floors, marking the sad grooves of a pathway to nowhere. Jeff's wing was on the third floor. I climbed the stairs, the steps so close together I managed three at a time, then walked by the nurse's station. No one was there. When I'd been in this building before, it had a kind of hum. People snoring, food carts clattering down corridors, aides laughing in the cafeteria over evening snacks, lights going off, a displaced yell or two. It was about 11.30 and too quiet. I finally ran into an aide in the hallway by the cafeteria. Excuse me, I'm looking for Jeff Corcoran. She set her lips to one side in a wary way. You know, he's supposed to be working tonight. Well, he was working tonight. Yeah, I I talked to him on the phone a little while ago. Is he okay? I don't know. I guess. Well, he was having a kind of an asthma attack or something, and I was worried about him. I'm a close friend. My name's Katie. Katie Robb. She gave me that look again, her dark eyes sizing me up. Yeah, I think I've heard of you. I'm Marty. We stared at each other for a while. I was about to go when she said... We could check the dispensary. He was due to give the nighttime meds. She motioned for me to follow her. She slid along the floor, her white sneakers making a shushing sound. I'm not supposed to take you there. Well, thanks. Really. The dispensary was a small room, about eight by twelve, with shelves and two fridges. And a wide assortment of bottles and pills behind glass-covered doors that were so old they just had brass fasteners to keep them shut. This is the last place I saw him. I imagine Jeff grabbing a fistful of pill bottles and pouring them down his throat, having a seizure, then lying on his back in the middle of the room, fading away until he was gone. Panicked that I'd missed too many clues for too long, I asked, You're sure he didn't have an accident tonight? Have to go to the hospital next door? Uh, no, I think I would have noticed the commotion. You can check emergency if you're concerned. Okay. Look, Katie, I think Jeff might be sick but not that sick. Oh, the arches of my feet went a little rubbery. I put an arm out against the wall to steady the wobble. Yeah, I think he just had to go. Leave, you know. Marty shrugged. Gotta go. I followed her out the door. You look like you need a coffee. She pointed to a doorway two doors down. The cafeteria reminded me of elementary school. Small tan chairs and tables and dirty brown linoleum floor, and it was empty too. I wondered if a seismic jolt had flashed through the roof and vaporized all the people in the place. I scuffed around the tables for a few minutes, hoping for a sign that Jeff had spent time there that evening. About the time I thought about going next door to check to see if Jeff was in the hospital, I spotted Jeff's green backpack lying under a table. I made a beeline for it as if it were King Solomon's mine. Jeff loved this backpack. Covered with old campaign stickers, including one for McGovern in 1972, and it usually bulged with a week's worth of stuff. When I lifted it, it felt uncharacteristically light. That had to be Jeff's first clue for me. Travel spare. When I opened it, there was a square of paper written in pencil. Katie, sorry, it was time to go. There's never a good way to leave, is there? I don't mean you. I'll call you later on. You can count on it. Don't show this to anyone. Jay. A paperback book was inside one of Jeff's favorite thinkers. Not Bergson, the other one. Martin Buber. I and thou. Of Of course. course. I figured that was the second message. 
Go only with connection. The real thing. Nothing Nothing else mattered. mattered. I'm reminded of the footprint, the single footprint on the island that Robinson Crusoe sees. Uh, Oh, wow. uh, And this note. Look what she makes of it. It's like this talisman she finds, and it could mean so many different things. But her hope and her trust and her, I would say, fundamental optimism in this case regarding her relationship with him. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, she wanted to propose to him that she go with him on the road trip to Ohio back to his dad. But she doesn't get it in in time. She really is compelled by this person. And they seem to trust each other. And they're not afraid to contradict one another. But his rush, like you say, cuts off what might be an elaboration that would clarify these ambiguities. And so she's left wondering. And I think that's the moment where faith functions. It's a noun, but at that moment it acts. Yeah, and and faith is such a strong part of friendship. Faith that this friend will go through life with you, you know, with your good friends, which is why it's so devastating to lose an old friend. I mean, they're utterly irreplaceable. And these two have a closeness that's partly based, it seems, on their relational predicaments with others and that they can trust that they will understand or sympathize about being with someone they may not want to stay with and how difficult it is to change from or out of that. I just want to say one thing about where the story came from. I was in a friendship with someone like this man And he kept calling me and telling me increasingly about how this woman he was involved with was pressuring him. And pretty soon she didn't want him to have friendships outside the marriage. She was trying to control his life. And again, she was decades older than him. And he was slowly getting really freaked out. And in the real story, he does commit suicide. And, you know, that story haunted me for years and years and years and years. And I was just devastated by his death. And then I started thinking about, well, how else could that story have turned out? Could he have just gone away? Could he have just stepped out of that reality and left? Mm -hmm. Which isn't necessarily a a good outcome, at least not for the immediate, you know, friendship. But it leaves open especially with his line that he'll be back in touch, that leaves open the possibility that whatever healing he needs to do can get done and there is going to be a future. Yeah, and I I think I had to write the story because I didn't want the outcome that had happened to happen. I wanted him to have an out, you know? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's really smart. That's a great form of therapy. It was. It was a therapeutic thing. It was like, how could this have ended differently? So you literally rewrite reality. Oh, ooh, that's a bad pun. I won't even say literally. So you rewrite reality <laughs> and <laughs> you rewrite reality to suit you because it could have gone differently. And honestly, if she felt bad for a minute, I think that would be a mistake. I mean, we just don't know what our even civil rejections might do to somebody else. And that's even the wrong way to put it. We're not doing anything to them. We're just standing our ground and doing what we have a right to do. I wonder, in a way, if his was a life without faith. He did not believe he could handle this situation. He couldn't, for some reason, break off with her in a way she could accept, although maybe she was a little crazy. I think so. But to me, it really was about faith. 
having that faith in oneself, as Poe said, self-confidence. Your story elicits this sort of question. What is the basis for faith? How does it operate? How does it relate to hope and trust and prediction and uh, influence and a sense of responsibility? These things are all tangled up in this little story. Yeah, there's a lot tangled up. And, and also that strange attraction that sometimes couples have, you know, two couples get to be friends and one person in each of the couples is fascinated by the other. I think that happens a lot. It certainly happens a lot in stories and movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I saw that. Yeah. Oh. Well, it's and and this brings, you know, it raises the question of what those relationships that endure, what do they have to do with faith and uh, hope and belief and trust and pledges and oaths and vows and a lot. And not only that, but when we adopt pets, we also have a responsibility to faithfully provide food. Faithfully provide food, and the cat is scratching at the door. We better do it. Okay. A little wolf town from Dave Merrill. Back in a few. I'm Lynn Miller. And I'm John Modaff, and we are glad you're still with us, if you are. And if you're not, that's okay, too. We have been swimming through some deep water so far. We touched a little bit on religious faith, and we touched a lot on relationships and their relationship to faith. But faith and memory and faith and processing of experience are also twisted up together into an interesting knot. And our second poem dives into that. Yes, the poem is My Grandmother Told the Story This Way. It's by Catherine Saluja, New Mexican poet. She lives in Santa Fe, whom we have performed before. This poem is forthcoming in Catherine's new book, Point of Entry, which comes out next year, 2023, from UNM Press. This is her third book. Catherine's genesis for this poem. I have recently completed a cycle of ancestor poems. This poem memorializes an actual event that occurred to my grandmother as told to me by my mother. My Grandmother Told the Story This Way by Catherine Saluha She was flying above the Palisades, watching the colors of sunset fall over the river. She could see the entire valley and the way the river sliced through the land. My grandmother jumped awake. All seemed quiet in the house. The clock my grandfather carried from Luino, ticking softly above the stove. His sleep breathing syncopated to the ticking. The lights of a passing car outside the window briefly lit up the wall of their room. And there, at the foot of their bed, a soft, radiant figure. A woman wrapped in a translucent blue cloak. The air around her seemed to glow. My grandmother was certain she smelled roses. The woman called softly, Sara, Sara, in a voice so familiar, a northern Italian lilt. 
She had never been so awake. She felt the air on her skin prickling. She remembers the heater cycling on, my grandfather shifting slightly in his sleep. Your brother will be healed. He is safe. The glowing woman at the foot of the bed told her. And And that that was all. My grandmother blinked and rubbed her face and watched. As the figure dissolved into the floral wallpaper. And the sapphire light from the window. In the morning, the the telegram telegram arrived. Whoa, what does that telegram say? (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Catherine. Well... Again, there's some ambiguity. We're not sure if your brother will be healed, he is safe, means in eternity, or if indeed he's okay. Because if, why, why was the telegram sent? Unless he was at death's door and right. a relative writes and says, he's out of danger now. He made it. Mm-hmm. But then does an angel need to come and tell you? Uh, that's what suggests to me it's leaning the other way. And that I know. He, will be, he will be safe in eternity or will be healed. Yes, uh, he will be healed. Yeah. And it's so much more terse than your standard telegram. But the, you're right, the ambiguity is great. As with the other poem, it's a challenge that you can meet by looking longer and deeply at the poem itself and seeing, mm-hmm. once again, we've got possibilities here. To retell a dream like this or an experience like this itself, you know, tests faith. Yeah. I think that the radiant figure who is so beautiful with the air glowing around her and that translucent blue, which reminds me of many cathedrals, she comforts our speaker, the speaker's grandmother, uh, Mm -hmm. so that no matter what has happened, she can make it through it. The voice so familiar... She had never been so awake. I yes. could almost hear grandma, you know, grandmother saying that. No, I have never I had never been so awake. I was mm-hmm. not sleeping. Right. This is real. This was real. Yeah, and the, she felt the air on her skin. She remembers the heater. She just lists off these mundane observations and as if to answer the doubter. Yes, and those textures of real life. The heater, the grandfather shifting in his sleep, the smell of roses, all of those real things. And from that, the abrupt, you know, the chasm is leapt over or leaped over. I'm not sure which. Your brother will be healed. He is safe. And so we move from the empirical to the fantastic. And so these worlds weave together in a way that tests your faith. But as it's told, as in most good tales of brushes with the supernatural, Uh, It's hard to just dismiss out of hand because of the earnestness of it. It is. And we don't get from the grandmother's story any images of the brother. She doesn't see the brother or see his face, which sometimes people do in dreams like this or visions like this. We don't get any textures of him. We only get her subjective reality. So an angel is a natural thing to someone who believes in angels. That's right. uh, I wonder if that is a, a an, an ingredient to have experiences like this, that you mm-hmm. have to first be faithful. But then I remember James' uh, fantastic work, The Varieties of Religious Experience, where he interviews dozens and dozens of people and looks at written testimony and journals and diaries and letters. 
and people who didn't consider themselves the least bit inclined to be of faith or faithful or religious have religious experiences that completely flip them around. That's right. It's not necessary to be devout in any way to have an experience like this. One of the things I took away from this poem is that perhaps faith is what we most need when we fear someone close to us will die or has died, that faith is what gets us through. Our second song might be a good way to explore this. With You is really about the relational faith and the anticipation of relationship. Well, let's just hear the song. Yes, With You. That summer day You walked on by Improving the sunshine I didn't know yet I would spend my life With you Sharing a joke like a sphinx in the sky I watched you smoke I got to thank it I could spend my life With you There is no darkest night And every day Starts just right Holding your Mine. I could spend my life with you There's a final verse song But while I'm singing to you I can't go wrong I'll be singing for the rest of my life with you The song certainly brings us into that wonderful sense of immediate feeling of hope and oh what if and this could happen and desire I mean all of those things are tied up in faith I think yes I love that line that you just said this could happen there's the apostles creed right in Christianity but in uh in relationships the relators creed is three words this could happen yeah and once it happens, we have faith it will continue. And we have hope that it will continue. Yes. And it's unequivocal. I mean, if you look at the standard wedding vows, which is a, a faith-based promise, I mean, it's unequivocal. I will, I do. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, mm -hmm. But from that moment on, uh, because everyone looks around at the real world and sees that it doesn't always work out, uh, each one of us has to uh, face that faith question. You know, uh, are we still practicing what we practiced that day? 
Yeah, and part of the wedding vow is I promise. And within Mm -hmm. every promise is faith that it will be kept. That's why faith seems crazy, I think, to some people, because we know about promises and they can be easily broken. And I think that a lot of folks who fancy themselves atheists are really faithophobic and they because they've seen so many violations right and how easily a, a promise which is just mere phonemes anyway is broken that it becomes impossible to believe that it's sane to trust well i think we can say that cynicism is the absence of faith and the absence of hope and um we're certainly seeing that around us Today, everywhere, you know, in our country, in our societies, in our world. But human beings, I believe, cannot live without faith. We must have faith and we must have hope. Right. And you saying that in its broadest possible context is unobjectionable, except to uh, a nihilist or a cynic. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately, that word faith gets tied up with the capital F, faith, which immediately gets linked to just one of its varieties, which is religious faith. And then we, we lose faith in faith for a minute because people, a lot of people are allergic to religion. And that's, that's a right. shame because take, faith takes the hit that religion deserves or has coming anyway from some people. And that's too bad. And I hope maybe we've broadened it out a little bit today between us and our listeners just think that faith is a lot bigger um, it's big enough in religion. Let's let's not minimize it, but it's a lot bigger than that. And it really functions in a lot of places and ways, even just while we're driving. We have faith in so many things uh, that daily life demands it of us constantly. Yeah, we literally could not go on if we thought everyone was going to run a red light, for instance. Right, or that yellow line I mean, down the middle was just arbitrary. Yeah, Um <laughs> You know, faith is sown into living, and so it is the umbrella, not religion. And so I think we've we've given faith a good ring, and we've hung it out on the line, and it's just about dry. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners will have other ideas about faith, which we'd love to hear. But yes, what shall we talk about next time? Well, we've been mulling over some things, and the one that bubbles to the top for me is memory. Yes. Well, it's been fun, and I trust that it's been fun for you, too. It's been fun for me, and listeners, I hope it's been wonderful for you. I'm Lynn Miller. And I'm John Modev. And this has been The Unruly Muse. Mm-hmm.